IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On this show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week, we review albums, and we hash out trends. In this episode, we review new albums by M83 and 100 Gex and respond to letters from you, the IndieCast listener. My name is Stephen Hyden, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host. All of his tweets about Meg White are very respectful. Ian Cohen. Ian, how are you? Yeah, I I just want to say, you know, for the past 20 years and the rare times I do listen to Elephant all the way through, I do not skip in the cold, cold night. See, exactly. You are here for Meg White. You would never cast aspersions on her drumming ability or her vocal ability or her taxidermy <laughs> ability i think that's what she's doing now. yeah she's like kind of like off the real. grid in detroit now i hear yeah somewhere in michigan she's like stuffing animals and uh living her best life um i bring up meg white because there was a controversy this week in the social media world where some random guy a political writer not just tweeted, any political writer He's a guy who writes well, for the National Review. Now, it, I imagine most... Well, <laughs> see, I'm not sure if he writes for the National oh. Review or if he was responding. Because, yeah, I, I originally thought he was a National Review writer, but he was responding to... There was a piece in the National Review where, for whatever reason, they decided to write about the White Stripes. <laughs> I didn't know National Review did music stories. No. Uh, but they did a... Some guy there... Uh, wrote a piece about how Seven Nation Army is the greatest song of the 21st century. Greatest song, not greatest rocks, like greatest song, like of all, right? Yeah, I think, yeah, I don't think he qualified rock song. I think if you made, if you made the case for it being the best rock song, I think that's a fairly strong case. Certainly the most famous rock song of the, of of the 21st century, just because of the jock jams Mm -hmm. aspect of it. it. It is like the, we will rock you of the 21st century, even though they still play We Will Rock You. So <laughs> We Will Rock You is the We Will Rock You of the 21st century. The Seven Nation Army is, is very big. But anyway, there was a guy who was responding to that, and he said something about how the White Stripes would have been better with uh, like a better drummer, a more technically proficient drummer. And people went berserk <laughs> over this, defending the honor of Meg White, which, by the way, I love Meg White. She's great. I always thought that the consensus on the White Stripes is that Meg White's drumming is the point of the White Stripes. Mm-hmm. Like, they're not the White Stripes if you have a good drummer, or I should say a traditionally good drummer, because then they just become like another blues rock band. And, you know, Jack White's songs obviously are great, but, you know, they, they don't have that unique thing that the White Stripes had. Um, did you follow this at all? I mean, because I felt like people were going berserk and it's like this weird thing on social media where when someone you've never heard of uh-huh. has a bad opinion that that's really upsetting yes <laughs> <laughs> this, this this guy that yeah that you wouldn't you know no one heard of this guy although i guess he had like he has like a lot of followers on twitter i guess but i feel like every political writer has like seventy thousand followers and you've never heard of any of them <laughs> but anyway did you like witness this like meg white 
meltdown that was going on this week? I was vaguely aware of it because I think in the span that it happened, this was either on a day where I was like flying back from Vancouver or like struggling with the stomach bug. So I was aware of it because I wasn't really in a position to do much besides like, you know, look at Twitter. But I did see it happening. And like, I just want to, we just have to like be perfectly clear that like the National Review was running this story alongside our articles like it isn't racist to prosecute criminals and <laughs> the Silicon Valley bank bailout doesn't justify mass student debt relief. Like I was just yeah. happy to get like a Twitter controversy that didn't involve Silicon Valley bank because like I just cannot fucking understand macroeconomics for the life of me. But um, yeah, I mean, look, we I'm just like wondering like what this guy thinks about Muse because, you know, like the idea like for First off, like, is Meg White a, quote, bad drummer? Like, most of the job of a drummer is to look fucking cool. And, like, Meg White is off the charts with that, especially within the context of, uh, you know, what this band was about. But, I mean, also, like, Jack White's Right Stripes riffs aren't that complicated. Like, it is not hard to play Seven Nation Army. It is not hard to play Hotel Yorba. It is not hard to play Deadlies in the Dirty Ground. And, like, I don't know who hears that and thinks, you know what? Like, I would really love to hear what Neil Park could have done with this, man. Like, I don't hear enough roto-toms. I don't hear enough mixed meter drumming. I mean, it just doesn't make... It just shows, like, a real misunderstanding of, like, what makes music actually fucking cool. So, I mean, I, I also wonder if, like... This guy has the opposite opinion. Like, you think about, like, uh, Travis Barker in Blink-182 playing all this insane shit where, like, Tom and, uh, you know, Tom and Mark haven't learned a fourth chord yet in the past 20 years. Does he think, like, uh, Blink-182 needs to get, like, Vernon Reed and, like, Joe Satriani <laughs> up in there? Yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I actually felt bad for this guy after a while because I feel like we all have terrible opinions on music. You know, you and I, we have our share of terrible opinions. We've also been that, we've been that guy on Twitter when it, like... We, yeah, we've been in the barrel before. And it's so disproportionate to what... Because, look, I think he's wrong, but I also don't... Who, who cares? I don't, I don't yeah. know this guy. <laughs> like, who, who, fine, he doesn't like Meg White strumming. That has no impact on my life. And I don't think his opinion says anything greater about... The culture, you know, like where we have to put this guy in his place because there's this epidemic of Meg White hatred in the world. I just don't think that that's it's like the online brain poisoning that happens with this sort of thing. And and I've been susceptible to it too. Like you see a bad opinion, and there's something in your brain that just gets triggered. It's like I got to respond to this. Yeah. I got to put this in place. <laughs> and if you just step back and you look at it objectively, it's like why do I care about this? This has no impact on my life at all. I do have an idea though because i know like a lot of publicists listen to the show or at least that's what they tell me, when they, email me. <laughs> they may be lying to me but i think that uh, i think there are a lot of publicists li who listen to the show and i have a great pr idea that you can all steal okay and this is this is what it is so this is what you you, you reach out to a political writer who's got like seventy thousand followers and you say i want you to tweet something mean about my client like, let's mm. say, for instance, you represent Britney Spears. You say to the political writer, I want you to tweet that Britney Spears can't sing. Right. Now, that's, a, <laughs> now that's an opinion that, like Meg White, can't drum. I feel like that's probably a more common opinion than 
we realize, you know, it, like to me, it seems like kind of like a dumb guy opinion, but mm-hmm. I, I'd imagine there's probably a, a, a considerable number of people who think that. So you tell the political writer, tweet, Britney Spears can't sing, because I know that's an opinion that would dominate Twitter for at least 24 hours, right. if not 36 <laughs> hours. And what happens if, when you tweet that is that there'll be this groundswell of support. People will be like, Britney Spears is a vocal stylist. She is perfect for this kind of songs that she sings. You know, this is Blackout uh, is 10 out of 10, which is actually like an opinion I see way more often than like Britney Spears can't sing. Yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe you, you could be that specific and say, Blackout is a mid-Britney Spears record. <laughs> and what you've done by, you know, having this tweet from a random political writer, you've created this groundswell of support for your client. Your client is now trending. You know, I was thinking with the White Stripes, you know, they're up for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and the ballots are out right now. People are voting. I bet they're going to get some votes because of this. I bet people are going to be like, I like Meg White. (laughs) Apparently she's not being respected enough. I, I have to vote for her to get in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame so that she can get the respect she deserves. I think that this is multi-dimensional chess i don't know how many dimensions of chess this is four somewhere between like three and four it's like it's (laughs) it's not like 40 it's like a slightly more complicated psyop right here but i mean why go for a seven well yeah i'd say like you're right and you got to go with a seventy thousand follower you might not be able to get like i don't know jordan peterson or like barry weiss to say like you know well yeah like hey uh, I heard that Muse like is super into trans rights, and then like you know Jordan Peterson all of a sudden has to turn tack on that band. But yeah, yeah I mean, you just got to get you, you got to think realistic. Yeah, I mean, I don't like I don't think you need like Ben Shapiro to to tweet <laughs> like, oh, the Red Hot Chili Peppers' Californication isn't a good album. You know, like I don't think you need someone of that caliber. You just need so, like again like a. A writer, you look at them and you're like, wow, you have a lot of followers. You have a pretty big platform, even though I've never heard of you. Yeah. Uh, but you have all these followers, so you must be significant, so I'm going to get mad at you. Music writers are work. small potatoes, man. Like, you got to think bigger than that. I mean, like political writers, I feel like this happens every couple like every couple months, maybe even like every couple weeks. Some political writer will, will have like a terrible take <laughs> on music. Yeah. And people will get upset about it. And again, I think a publicist could leverage this to their advantage to help their clients, like, like in a very sort of covert way. Uh, even though generally I don't support political writers sharing musical opinions, you got to leave it to the professionals. You know, leave it to us, stay in your lane, uh, or else things like this happen. It, yeah. I mean, it's it, it, look. it gives me, it get, it makes me think of Obama's playlist a lot better because when you see, like, even the, like, the good political writers, when you see their musical opinions, like, they're usually into, like, the Mekons or the Fall or something like that. You see Obama <laughs> and it's like, damn, dude, this guy's actually, this guy actually has some pretty decent taste. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, the Mekons guy. I, you know, well, I won't tell that story. I had a run-in with a guy who was a very big Mekons guy. <laughs> I don't even... Uh, look, I don't know any of their music. I just know they're like kind of that like Billy Bragg uh, extended universe, right? Yeah, I mean, I think you know they started out as more of a punk band and then they moved in a Americana direction. They have some good songs, but... Okay. There's definitely... Like the Pogues type shit. 
<laughs> not, wow. not, not like the folks. <laughs> How the fuck did we end up uh, here? <laughs> there's like, I mean, look, like Mekon's guy is a is definitely a character. Uh, the, <laughs> if you run into a Mekon's guy, it, it may not be a good experience. I'm, I'm just going to say that. This might be a topic we need to revisit uh, somewhere down the road. Let's talk about these albums that came out this week. As I said at the top, we're going to be talking about two albums here. We're not going to go super in depth with these records because um, we have a we have like a huge mailbag backlog, tons of emails from our listeners, which is great. I love seeing that. So we're going to answer a bunch of emails today because I feel like we're behind on that. But before that, let's talk about this M eighty three record that's out today. It's called Fantasy. You wrote about this for the Ringer. Will Will that story have been up by the time this episode posts? Uh, yes, I believe it'll be up either uh, Wednesday, well, Wednesday or Thursday, and we're recording on Wednesday, so it'll definitely be out by uh, the release date. Because I wanted to ask you this, because I know you've interviewed uh, Anthony Gonzalez, it's the man behind M83. He's like the only guy in the band, right? Other well, than a constant member, or are there other yeah, members? Yeah, he, he's like the brain trust, but there's like guys who are fairly permanent fairly permanent fixtures in the band like Justin Melville Johnson who's you know the co-producer he's now like St. Vincent's music director whatever and mm. he did that for like okay. for 20 years or something like that produced the last Def Heaven album last couple of Jimmy World albums love that guy's work so the the daddy's home era musical director uh no i think he just did starting in 2021 so I, is that when daddy's home came probably I, daddy's home was yeah, that was twenty twenty one, wasn't it? It was like COVID era. That's like all one big blob of time. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's like that's like one long year twenty twenty to like twenty twenty two. I wanted to ask you this because you know I was listening to this record. I like this record quite a bit. I think you like it too. Yeah, um, but it made me realize you know because I I like several M eighty three albums, but like I've never thought for a second about Anthony Gonzalez when I listen to these albums. You know, like like we talk about the cult of personality that exists uh, in pop and indie rock lately where uh-huh. it's as much about the person as it is about the records. It's like, I like Japanese Breakfast, but I, I really like Michelle's, M- Michelle Zahner. Like, I think she's a good, cool person and I'm a fan of like her as just like a personality. Like, that seems like a very common thing now. And M83 seems totally outside of that to me. Like... It's beautiful music, but it's almost like it's its own thing separate from, like, I get no sense of who he is listening to these records. Like, am I, am I wrong on that? Like, do you, do you feel like his personality is integral to, like, what this band is? Well, not in the way that, you know, like it would be for a Japanese Breakfast or Phoebe Bridgers. Now, I, this will be the fifth time I've interviewed Anthony Gonzalez between like right before the release of Hurry Up, We're Dreaming and Now. And each time, like Midnight City just had metastasized into this bigger, scarier thing for him. And each time he was basically like, I kind of want to disappear. Like he was never, like his personality comes through in the music in the sense that like he loves old movies. He loves like old books. And he's kind of like a movie director in that sense where like he's got a house style but, like, you don't learn a lot about his actual life. And he kind of wants it to be that way. Um, I, he, it was really funny. He, like, 
we talked about like what new stuff he's into and he said the Fablemans was his favorite movie of the past year, which is like, and then he laughed cause like it was the most fucking on brand thing he could say. It's like a Steven Spielberg movie. That's like entirely about nostalgia. But you know, I think that like he really shies away from making himself a component of the music, which I find to be, you know, quite uh, refreshing uh, because it's you, you don't have to think about the people making it um and you know, like m83 like especially the red seas to hurry up we're dreaming uh phase made like some of my favorite music ever made like this is like a band that was like custom designed for my sensibilities and i just love the fact that he pivoted back to like making m83 music like junk was kind of a noble failure and even in his mind and this proves and in a way i didn't expect that he could kind of do m83 things and still um you know sound good sound relevant sound like exciting you know it's not like a it's not gonna like totally fuck up my world in the same way that like any of it like saturday's equal youth did but um you know it's a album i could throw on wherever you know it's it, it integrates itself into uh, daily life in a way that like his other albums sort of couldn't because they were like movies and that you have to pay attention to them and nothing else. Um, I think that like one, one question that I thought of, and I, I wanted to run this by you because you know, it doesn't necessarily pit my taste against yours per se, because we both like these bands. But when I look at like the long tail influence of hurry up, we're dreaming, it seems to me either to be the most or the second most influential indie rock record of the 2010s next to, lost in the dream like is that a fair assessment yeah you know yeah because you had this in the outline like what album is more influential and it's in a way i feel like because hurry up we're dreaming precedes uh lost in the dream that lost in the dream could almost be put in the lane of music that is kind of building on what that record did Mm -hmm. you know where it's this uh sort of like a dreamscape 80s synth rock type thing. Although, you know, I think Adam was already doing that sort of thing parallel to uh, the M83 records. Like, I, I I don't know if he's influenced by them. I, I've never heard... That'd be an interesting question, actually. I wonder if he's, like, a fan of those M83 records. Because I don't, I don't think I've ever put them in the same context until you, like, brought up this question. But... Mm-hmm they totally do belong together because they're definitely, you know, Anthony Gonzalez and Adam Granducio. I think they're both probably inspired by the same things, uh, from the past. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting with this record because it's a record I really enjoy. And I think it's, uh, a more consistent record in, in a lot of ways than hurry up. We're dreaming. But I, I feel, I get the sense with AM83 that Hurry Up, We're Dreaming is like such a perfect realization of his aesthetic that like anything afterward is going to sound a little bit like diminishing returns. And he you know? literally, and he literally said that to me. It's like, you know, <laughs> okay. like, uh, like what can I do to top this? You know, like I can't possibly top this. And you know, with Junkie, just kind of did a little bit of a freak out the squares kind of record that, um, you know, like was a little, at, it, it was still very much within the 80s, but it was more like Punky Brewster. It was more like, you know, who's the boss? I think the funny thing about like this is that 
M83's, like, junk precedes the entirety of the Stranger Things franchise and, like, which to me is another form of, like, M83's influence. Even if it isn't, like, a direct influence, it's sort of kind of, like, prime the pump for that sort of 80s revivalism. Same with, like, Wednesday, that show, which I think is hilarious because, like, every time you see a Jenna Ortega interview, she talks about how much she hates being in that show it's sort of a parallel to like, it's sort of like graveyard girl writ large, but like, it's sort of like how Anthony Gonzalez, every time he's interviewed, he talks about like how midnight city, he kind of wishes it would go away. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, it's his curse that he made probably the best like indie pop song of the decade. I mean, yeah. that, that song, I, I, I'm hard pressed to name another song that even approaches that. I mean, and it's such a perfect single that yeah, he has in a weird way, like hurt himself because uh-huh. it's, it's just hard to uh, do something that is as perfect as that. Having said that, I do think that this record uh, fantasy is loaded with like just beautiful songs. I was just thinking about the tune in the middle of the record, uh, Laura. Oh yeah. Great just, song. Just a, just a beautiful song. And I think if you just listen to this album on its own terms, it I think it totally delivers. It's like a very kind of pleasurable record uh, to listen to. So, I mean, he's got it. It's just like, yeah, how do you navigate that part of your career when you've like achieved perfection and you still want to make more records? I mean, you just have to muddle through i guess with like this beautiful album you know i, I don't know it's it tough. sounds very it sounds like very philosophical in french i think he would appreciate that <laughs> well let's talk about the other record this week that's interesting to us and that's Ten Thousand gex from the hyperpop duo 100 gex and we we talked about this record a little bit uh a few weeks ago when we were doing our spring preview this being an album that was intriguing to both of us just because 100 Gex was a band that was very buzzy in critical circles and also had a fair amount of commercial success as well. Mm -hmm. But people really looking at this as being like the sound of like the new decade, you know, and if you're not familiar with 100 100 Gex, basically they do something similar to M83 in the sense that they're drawing on the music from the past, but whereas Gonzalez's taking those reference points and blowing them up and making them sound beautiful and lush and sort of like a hyper homage to that era. 100 Gex take, I would say maybe like less reputable sounds yeah. <laughs> of like, of like popular music in the past and they take it apart and they put it to back together in these like off kilter shapes. So it, it, it might evoke like an R and B radio hit from the nineties, but like, it's a little weird. It's it's kind of coming at it from like a Dutch angle type thing. Um, this new album, I have to say, intellectually, is interesting to me. It's interesting for me to think about because the reference points on this record are basically like what was played on K-Rock in 2005. You know, like this very sort of like shiny, almost plasticky rock music, you know, we talked about the single, uh, what was that? Hollywood baby was the single sounding a lot like Beverly Hills, like Uh the Weezer song. And listening to this record, I feel like they're even emulating like how hyper compressed 
a yeah. lot of those records are Just like loudness war five-star general you know yeah like like when you listen to the cd of californication it just sounds horrible because <laughs> like if you play it loud it's like super like distorted and clips all the time and and, and that's what they're doing on this record on purpose yeah. so that's that's interesting to me to kind of comment on that era um i also have to say though that there are genuinely irritating moments on this record uh, that that drove me up the wall. Like the song, uh, I Got My Tooth Removed. Right. <laughs> Super annoying. There's another song called One Million Dollars. And, you know, we've talked about the discourse about this band. And, you know, I was listening to this record and I'm like, this record at times is so annoying to me that I wonder if it's genius. <laughs> Like, am I just behind the times on this record? Am I going to catch up to it in five years? I wonder if, like, that is how a lot of people feel about this band. Like, it annoys me so much that it might actually be great. Mm-hmm. You know? Do you think there's something to that? Or, I mean, because I think there's also moments on this record that I enjoyed that I thought were fun. Yeah. I think but, that... Uh, I wonder if they leveraged their irritation factor, you know, as a way of, you know creating a sense of like forward thinking genius well you know first off i know that like there are like people who are really out there in the hyper pop trenches who will tell you that like 100 gex isn't hyper pop which is sort of like i guess the variant of like my chemical romance isn't really emo right Um, green day isn't punk yeah so i mean with it like this album especially when i heard the uh i think it was the third single me 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 that's I think that's four me's. I think I got them all. Um, it reminds me just like how in the past, I don't know, 10 to 15 years as I've like, you know, started a real life job and, you know, not as social as I used to be. Like I've forgotten what it's like to just play music for the purpose of like other people's enjoyment. Like I, I that song reminded me of like what it was like in high school, like during the five minute drive to high school when I'd like play you know, the second NWA album where Korn's Life is Peachy just to say, like, you gotta fucking hear this, man. And it's like you play Twist and it's like the most crazy shit your 16-year-old mind has ever ra- tried to wrap itself around. It's kind of similar to, like, Andrew W.K. when I first got, uh, like, an advanced copy of I Get Wet. Just, like, coming back home to, like, my college apartment. It's like, guys, guys, like, you gotta fucking hear this. And just seeing their reaction to it. And I think that is kind of what 100 Gex does. I can imagine if I were like, you know, of a much, much, much younger age, how I'd like throw this on at like a party just to like, because it's like loud and like upbeat, but it's also kind of annoying. So it's my way of like putting my stamp on the proceedings. But like now it's like, how am I supposed to derive any sort of enjoyment beyond like the theoretical, you know, like what might happen if I were 25 and still had like a group of, you know, 10 friends that I saw like every other day. Um, I think with that, like I'm, I'm glad for them that this album is out because I feel like their, their forward path is not like release an album every couple of years and tour. I see them as, not like Dion Vord or like something like that, but more like a girl talk sort of thing where they're just kind of around and they're on every EDM adjacent uh, festival known to man and maybe they're in TV. I don't know. I think that like, I don't mind them being around. I do wonder how this will be received because I don't sense that there's like a backlash 
I think that everything that was said about them early on about like in 2019 about how they pretended a new decade was, I don't know, not more or less true, but like not totally off. And I don't think anyone like begrudges their success. It's just that like, I do wonder how people are going to try to wrap their mind around it is like, oh, is this like dumb genius? Is this genius genius? Uh, there will be a lot of like critical exercise to it. And, you know, I think that this is just a situation where we probably need to have like a 16 year old on like TikTok doing reaction videos because that's like the most, you know, accurate and resonant way to talk about like how 100 Gex works. Yeah, I, I like your Andrew WK comparison. I think that 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 seems apt to me. Uh, which would make this album The Wolf. I guess. <laughs> An album which I, I couldn't, da- I've never heard that album because it was for some reason so hard to like illegally download off whatever 2003 downloading service I was using. So I, I just never that. got it. I'm like, I'm not fucking paying for this. <laughs> I have the CD of The Wolf and on the cover, Andrew WK looks like very serious <laughs> and uh, he's kind of like looking over his shoulder at the camera yeah. and there's this idea being conveyed that this is the mature Andrew WK record, which just as Meg White's drumming is the point of the White Stripes, Andrew WK's immaturity is the point of Andrew WK. So a grown-up Andrew WK just seemed dead on arrival. Um, Yeah, I mean, I'm with you. Again, I think this band, to me, they're more interesting to think about than to listen to. Uh, Even though there's songs on this album that I like, but... uh, because they are, in a sense, music critics. Like, they're using music to comment on music. Yeah. Instead of using a keyboard, you know, their their, their computer laptop to comment on music. Or uh, even though they probably make this record on laptops. You know what I mean? Like, writing mm-hmm. about music the way we do, we're talking about it. That's how we do criticism. They do criticism by making records. Uh, so I'm interested in that intellectually. But then the actual results that end up on the record I, I tend not to be totally into yeah i i, I just hope i just hope that um 100 gex is like as kind of not dumb but like kind of simple as i want them to be not that the, like i really hope they don't come out with some like egghead type shit i just hope they like like smashing things well let's get to our mailbag segment here and this is the meat of the episode <laughs> by the way and i think we're i think we made our meat guarantee this week so i'm glad to report that um if you want to hit us up it's always great to hear from our listeners we're at indiecastmailbag at gmail.com uh we've got several letters here to get to uh do you want to read the first one ian i do so this comes from neil in richmond virginia uh shout to richmond love that area had uh quite a few i'm gonna like totally pander to steve uh massive nights in rva ah uh, yes this week, my two worlds collided with the announcement of Sufjan Stevens' album, Illinois, being turned into a musical theater production. I'm a high school theater teacher by day and an avid indie rock fan by night. Although the concept of an indie rock album being transformed into musical theater production is not new, think Anais Mitchell's Hadestown, I'm curious to see if there's an indie album the two of you could think would work well on stage. Thank you for expanding my indie rock palette. Love the pod. Neil, RVA. Before I answer that question or you answer that question, I I wanted to ask you something quick because I don't know. We've talked a little bit about, uh, about Sufi and Stevens, but I don't remember like what we said. So I'll just bring it up again. Are you a fan of Illinois? Oh because yeah. I, okay, because I've never really connected with that record, and I have to say that 
Like, I respect Sufjan Stevens, and there's a few of his records that I like, although I'm not really a super fan by any measure. I feel like the theatrical era of indie rock that existed in the aughts and went a little bit into the 2010s is generally, like, not looked back on fondly. Mm. You know, certainly, like, not by, like, younger generations. I feel like a lot of that stuff has not really been embraced, and maybe it will down the road. But Sufjan Stevens seems like the exception. Well, and yeah, like, he made very serious albums after that, you know, like I think Carrie, yeah. yeah, he's like, there's the Illinois era, but there's also, you know, like Carrie and Lowell, but I mean. Like Illinois though, I think is like still like love though. I feel oh, like that's well, a Chicago, record. Chicago, yeah. I mean, that's like the song. Yeah. Why do you think that is? Like, why do you think Sufjan Stevens gets that benefited out, but then yeah, like the Decemberists or <laughs> uh, Tune Yards, like stuff like that, I feel like gets clowned on but well, Sufjan I, is like an exception I think Sufjan has like proved his genius over like many many forms of music you know he had Seven Swans which is like a very spare folk album of like you know like basically about the Bible um, and you know Carrie and Lowell like he's just proven himself in so many forms that you know Illinois is part of what he does but it's not like the thing He's still pretty precious, though. I mean, oh, that's absolutely. The thing. Like, the preciousness, I think, is what makes people cringe now. Yeah. And he's he's as precious as anybody. But right. But it just seems like there's, there's like, the Sufjan exception there. Because, like, that, for me, is, like, why I've always resisted him a little bit, is the going on stage with, like, angel wings and playing mm-hmm. a guitar. I just, like, oh, Jesus Christ. Like, yeah. I can't I can't get beyond that. Even though I, I, re- I respect his talent and, and what he does, but... I don't know. It's it's interesting to me that he doesn't catch the strays that those other <laughs> artists do. I also think he kind of goes away for a very long time. And, you know, like he comes back every now and again with something that like, um, you know, reestablishes his uh, space in the world. Like, you know, like the Call Me By My Name soundtrack. But, you know, as far as like the theatrical Illinois era type thing, it's in- I, I know I say this about like, so much of the music that like I loved when I was like completely pitchfork pilled in like the mid aughts, but in or- the the theatrical stuff like that has kind of filtered down to emo for the most part. Like I'm thinking specifically about you know like the first Glass Beach album that has very Sufjan style stuff going on, or like Jeff Rosenstock's Worry. Um, and actually, it's funny because like I think about like the the musical theater stuff aside from say American Idiot. Um, I think of like, you know, Curse of the Ugly Organ, like that album's like lyric sheet was actually a libretto with stage directions. I think Say Anything's is a real boy was intended as a theatrical performance. Pedro the Lion's Control, I guess, in a way as well. Um, so, I mean, the the story's there, but as far as like what I think actually works as theater, I think I'm going to see something like, you know, Alice in Chains Dirt. <laughs> just something like completely fucking grim of like just one guy's like devolution into like heroin addiction, make it like Requiem for a Dream. Like I want to, I just like kind of want to veer away from like the music that has already all the you know horns and flutes and shit. Like let's yeah. just like let's just take something really out of character. Yeah, I mean I like theatrical rock music. You know, going back to like rock operas of the sixties and seventies. Like I, I get into that stuff, but like translating that into like a Broadway context, I tend not to be a fan of that. There's just something where it becomes too theatrical. 
uh, and it loses the the rockiness, and I, I I don't know that that seems pretty embarrassing to me. However, I do have an idea for a stage play. That's not based on an album, but it's like album adjacent, and mm-hmm. it would be a theatrical adaptation of "I Am Trying to Break Your Heart," where it's focusing on the relationship between Jeff Tweedy and Jay Bennett. Mm. I think that could be a great like Sam Shepard True West type play <laughs> that could be fantastic. I, I I honestly really think that could be a cool story. I don't know if you have to like get Jeff Tweedy's permission to do that, or if you could just maybe make a play about like a fictional rock band in Chicago <laughs> trying to make a, a masterpiece and like the core friendship in the band is like disintegrating as they're making the record. I, I think that would be, and it wouldn't be a musical. This would be like a play. Right. I think that could be good. I'm pitching things today. I had my PR idea. Now I've got my play. I like your play idea too. I like yeah. the Alice in Chains thing. I, I, I want to hear, Someone do the scream at the top of them bones, like in the <laughs> musical theater voice. Like, how do you translate that? Like, ah, like, can you do that in a musical theater yeah. type timber? I don't know. Yeah, the, the 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 hands down the greatest opening lyric of any rock album ever made. <laughs> it's just like right off the bat, like a guy screaming in absolute agony, and it just gets more depressing from there. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it definitely is a mission statement for that record. <laughs> Just Lane Staley screaming in pain. Um, let's get to our next letter. This comes from Charlie in Yakima, Washington. Thanks, Charlie, for writing in. Uh, Steve and Ian, De La Soul is finally on streaming platforms, and the albums are even better than I remember. But I'm reminded that Three Feet High and Rising was patient zero for rap skits, a scourge on 90s rap albums. What albums do you think is most responsible for indie rock artists putting unlistenable tracks on their albums. Shambolic double records like the White Album or Exile on Main Street, concept albums like Dark Side of the Moon or RK Computer. I feel like I'm seeing more spoken word interludes on new albums and I've lost patience for them. They mostly feel like like the prestige TV thing Steve complains about. Yeah. Yes, that's true. Uh, have either of you listened to an album lately where an interlude was essential? So Charlie's got a few things going on here. Yeah. He's Taking, we got the shot at rap skits. He's uh, and he's complaining about spoken word interludes here. So, mm-hmm. what do we want to address first here? Like, do you agree with him that skits are a scourge on '90s rap, rap albums? Yeah, I I, 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 I have to like strongly disagree on that because I mean, what like what would Ready to Die or The Chronic be without you know their skits like? How many how many times have like I had such a great time doing like the twenty dollar sack pyramid with my friends or even like the Outcast album skits or you know Purple Haze or the or like College Dropout like I yeah skits are like you know kind of hard to pull off but they're just one of the things that makes like nineties rap albums a very distinct thing in my mind so see and you haven't mentioned what I think is the greatest skit of what's all that? time is W Ball. Oh, of course, right. From Doggy Style. <laughs> I, 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 like a few summers ago, I, was, uh, I rented a cabin with some friends and I feel like we listened to W Balls <laughs> 10 times in a row. W Balls, W Balls, W Balls. It's like, it's, the only rap skits I don't like and I feel like this is like on a lot of the gangster rap albums right. is like where they're doing like the simulated sex skit. Yeah. You know, like, like there's one on Ready to Die. That one's you know, really funny. 
but it just goes on forever. And like, <laughs> do you actually listen to that when you put on Ready to Die? I'm like, I don't want to sit through this. Yeah. Like where they're doing the sex sounds, like ah, uh, like I feel like NWA would always have that. Like I think there's one on on the Chronic. Oh yeah, I yeah, the doctor's like, office. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the, like the panting and stuff. Like okay, I don't. <laughs> well, if not if you're around other people, but I mean, if like I, I'm thinking back to like again with the hundred. It's worse if you're by yourself. I think like yeah, listening fair. to a simulated sex skit <laughs> by yourself is like just feels so creepy i think if you're in a group of people you can at least like laugh at it but if yeah. you're just by yourself it, it it's almost like oh i it's like oh i'm listening to people <laughs> pretending to have sex by myself it's like i don't want to do that fun fact I, when i was in vancouver and uh over the past weekend I, I for some reason when i was walking downtown a lot of people were playing like 90s rap stuff on like portable speakers and a bunch of people were sitting around, like, actually listening to Doggy Style. And, like, I heard the Chronic Relief skit. It's, like, um, the one before Doggy Dog World where it's, like, my like Hail Mel without the Blue Note. Shit, never go platinum. And it's, like, yeah, <laughs> man. Also, like, kind of tying into the Daylock conversation, like, Doggy Style, to my knowledge, is not on streaming with, like, no. Daylock. Like, that is now because I think the Chronic is on streaming. Is, is Doggy Style, like, the most yeah. wanted non-streaming I think that's off again. Oh, I don't know what's real? going on there. That, that's got to be. It might be on Apple Music. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I I was trying to find no, Doggy Style. Yeah, recently. the Chronic is on there. Two thousand one is on Spotify, but uh, Doggy Style, I don't believe it is. I have the CD of Doggy Style from back in the day, but it's like that a is a. Oh no, nope. I see it. It's on here now. I thought it was. It, this one like kind of goes on and off for a while, but yeah, that you, that's a CD. You have to have the fucking CD. Yeah, just a classic. I, I want to circle back to De La Soul for yeah. a second because I've also been listening to De La Soul uh, lately, and it's it's funny with this with, with them because I feel like they there was this period, and maybe it's over now, where they were kind of dismissed as like stuffy old head rap music oh, like, totally. I feel like that that was something i was seeing a lot i remember like mtv news back in the mid 2010s assigned a takedown piece of three feet high and rising <laughs> to like some young like you know like when that was a trend like you'd find some young writer to like piss all over a classic record like uh, chance the to, rapper <laughs> that was mtv well, news too right yeah 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 the chance the rapper story I remember, like, someone at NPR wrote about Public Enemy, like, uh, takes a nation of millions, and the, the the angle was always like, oh, there's not enough bops on these records. Like, they're, you know, right. like, and, and, like, Three Feet High and Rising, like, the writer was making fun of all the skits on the, on the record. I mean, the thing with the skits on Three Feet High and Rising is that they're musical. It's not usually just someone talking. There's usually, like, some cool, like, music in the background, and and the sampling and stuff. I mean, I've been really enjoying revisiting that album in particular, just because that was a big record for me when it came out. And it's just amazing to hear like a record with like so many samples. Like it really does show like what we've lost now. That's like basically impossible to mm -hmm. make a record that I don't know how many samples are on that album. It's gotta be in the hundreds. Yeah, I mean, it's it, just there's so many layers to that record of like references. There's references in the lyrics, and there's musical references. You know, it's in that like Paul's boutique yeah. lane of just, and it's so fun. It's like God, I wish people could still do this because it it really was like a cool way to put records together. 
Yeah, I, it's it's similar to like you know when MF Doom died. Like if you follow any sort of like writer dudes who still actively care about rap and basketball, and you know make rap uh, metaphors about basketball or vice versa. Like they almost certainly love Dela. Like it is a very formative uh, part of a certain type of dude. You know, we we like to get into type of guy taxonomy here. But the funny thing is, like, that MTV News article, which I never saw, I would have, I would love to see that. Like, that was, that was, like, oddly enough, sort of kind of my view on Daylaw for a while. Like, them, like, along with the Tribe Called Quest, they sort of struck me as, like, you know, they, they position themselves as like the good rap, you know, especially like around the time Stakes is High came out in 96. They were like kind of pushing back against gangster rap and like, you know, what was emerging in Bad Boy. And I'm like, yeah, fuck that, man. I'm not here for a lecture. That said, man, like three feet high and rising. It's 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 so funny how like, you know, that and Paul's Boutique and Nation of Millions, they sound less dated to me than like an al- a rap album that came out like five or so years ago. Um, there's just something about them that's like so distinct and literally illegal to pull off that they, they just sound so fresh when I play them right now. I know that's like a real old head opinion, but, um, you know, like I, I would love to say like, yeah, make all sampling legal. But I also think that, you know, the, that aspect of hip hop allows it to evolve, uh, more quickly and often than like other forms of rock music. Like if sampling was still legal, I don't, maybe we still get Neptunes and Timbaland and all that stuff. But um, yeah, I, I, I listen to a record like that and I'm like, man, this is kind of too good for this world. Like there's like, just like such a joy and like uh, a fun and like discovery on uh, three feet high and rising that just seems completely divorced from everything else happening in this world. I listened to it while I was like driving through traffic in LA and it's like, yeah, I, that, that hour passed by like nothing. So uh, it's good that like people are finally getting to hear the album in like slightly altered form. They couldn't clear all the samples, but yeah, I, I um, actually went out and I bought a CD on eBay of like the original <laughs> album just because they yeah. couldn't put all the samples uh, from the original record because they couldn't clear all of them. So I'm like, oh, fuck that. I want the actual record. So I've been listening to the CD. How much a did lot. it cost to get the original? Well, my copy was $30. Ah, uh, right. So, and, and, I mean, I saw copies going for like $50 or $60. I mean, they are re-releasing it on CD, but, but I, I, I assume that the, that the new pressing of the CD is probably like the current version of the album. Right. And not the original album. So I wanted to get the, the cl- and I thought I had it, but I couldn't find it. So I was like, I'm going to buy this because this is such a great record. And it's interesting your point about if sampling were still legal, would you have these innovative producers that came along uh, in the late 90s, early 2000s? And I mean, that really was a time like where sampling, not only did it become harder to do, it just became less original too yeah. by the end of the 90s. Like where you just have, oh, like Puppy's just going to like just take every breath you take. And, yeah. you know, where on Three Feet High and Rising, there's like multiple samples being like interwoven together and it's like might be an obscure song or if it is like a more well-known song, they're using it in a really clever way. Mm-hmm. I just love that. I, I it, it does seem like a lost art and I do agree that it sounds fresher now, maybe because you can't do it. Mm. You know, there's something about it where it's, it's so in its own era, there's no modern equivalent to it. Um, let's get to our last letter here. Uh, do you want to read this, uh, our last letter? Yeah, so uh, the, I, I just love the uh, headline for this. Why are biopics bad? Uh, Colin Llewellyn <laughs> in uh, Los Angeles, California. I, ser- 
I seriously hope Colin doesn't work for like a talent agency or like some something else where this like letter might get him in trouble. Uh, why is it so hard to make movies about music? Are biopics just cursed because they always play like a checklist of moments that are never cool or organic? Looking at you, Bohemian Rhapsody. Are fictional band movies better? Uh, such as Almost Famous. Hell, I even like Rockstar more than most movie, most music biopics. Wow. So what, what are your favorites and what dream movie do you have? Mine would be a 1990 Scorsese-style biopic about Warren Zevon. I realize that go, goes against what I said about biopics, but come on. That's like a very Steve choice. Oh, man, Colin, you're speaking my language with that one. Um, it's interesting that this question comes up now because, you know, we just had the Oscars last weekend. and uh, We did? <laughs> yeah. Remember the Oscars? Uh, uh, I missed that. I was too caught up in a Meg White controversy. So, um, obviously, the, the musical biopic that was nominated was Elvis, and I, I don't think it won a single award. <laughs> I don't think so. Um, did, did you see Elvis? You didn't see Elvis, right? I, I did not see it, but like I heard it talked about on a different podcast, and it sounds like it's not like to call it a music biopic seems like extremely limiting. I, I it's like basically avant garde in right. the way that it it's like almost like it's sort of like uh, like a three feet high and rising type re, re, like retelling of Elvis's story, where it just like takes a bunch of samples and exaggerates them, and it becomes this like fascinating patchwork. Right. Yeah, exactly. And that's why I liked it. I I had very little expectations going into it, but uh you know, it's a film that I I don't think it is really trying to be an accurate portrayal of his life even though Austin Butler is very believable in the role and he was obviously very method in how he went about playing that part. And I think he was great in it by the way. I think he should have won best actor. Mm-hmm. He was I think he was I mean, cuz like Brendan Fraser, he also wears a fat suit. In yes. Elvis, and he has more panache in the fat suit than <laughs> than Brendan Fraser does. Um, but uh, yeah, it's really a film just about like Elvis as an idea, you know, and and mythology of Elvis, mythology of rock stardom, mythology of America, and I think it works on that level. Like I saw people complaining about you know inaccuracies in Elvis, and I'm just like, I, I feel like that misses the point. Yeah, it's like it's like watching like the Passion of the Christ and being like, oh Jesus, <laughs> Jesus wasn't really like this. It's like, well, no, it's about Jesus as an idea. You know, it's like not a documentary about Jesus. Um, I feel like the problem with biopics is that they're either too broad, which means like they're, like they're covering someone's entire life, and they're too literal. You know, and that speaks to the Elvis thing. Like, you're just reenacting someone's life. You're not really doing anything with it that's interesting. Um, and with music biopics in particular, I think the other problem is that actors generally are not as cool as musicians. You know? Yeah. Like, it, like Bohemian Rhapsody is, like, a great example of that. Like, Rami Malek is nowhere near as cool as Freddie Mercury. Like, like if you know what the real Freddie Mercury is like... It just seems lame to have mm. Rami Malek of all people playing him. Um, I wanted to ask you about another movie that was nominated for uh, Best Picture because I think this is actually a good example of a biopic, even though it's not really a biopic, and that's Tar. Oh yeah, Love because it. yeah, I I really like Tar too, and I think one of the things that's great because it's a movie about a, a musician. 
not a real musician, although like a lot of people got tricked. Yeah. <laughs> into thinking, because it's actually, I mean, it's very detailed. I don't know much about classical music in that whole world, but I don't know. It seemed like a very accurate depiction. Although she's probably too famous to be a conductor. I yeah. mean, that's maybe the one thing. Like she's on the cover of Time magazine and stuff. It's like, ah, probably, there's, I don't, there's no conductor now that's that famous. But I think what makes Tar work in comparison to like, actual biopics is that it it focuses on the most interesting part of her story. Hmm. It's like not Lydia Tarr's whole life. It's basically about her downfall or depending on how you look at it, like a nightmare of a downfall. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's why it works. Like biopics I think are better if they just focus on something specific in someone's career mm-hmm. and not the whole thing. Does that make sense? I mean, cause you're a fan of Tarr too. Yeah. Right? I, I love Tarr and I think you, you get to a, a point which makes this movie like way more interesting than a straightforward music biopic is that, you know, she's this classical conductor. I guess you would have to assume in the modern day because a lot of the, you know, the language and the technology is, you know, it seems like it's present day. Um, and the, it begins with this like excruciatingly long interview with Adam <laughs> Gopnik from, uh, in New York and it's like no conductors ever that fucking famous. And you kind of get the sense maybe that this entire movie is this like delusion, uh, especially as it starts, the, the reality starts to break down towards the end. And I think that's what makes it such an interesting film to, uh, you know, to, to think about as well as watch. Cause so many people are like, well, uh, this is about cancel culture or it's about like high art. No, it's like, this is just someone inventing their entire, like weird famous uh life uh because you know they're they're cast out of that world or whatever and that just makes it so much more it's like as much of a multiverse movie as like everything everywhere all at once um but you know to get to to get to like is that a spoiler alert are we spoiling the movie by by saying (laughs) that by the way (laughs) maybe i don't know if you if 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 you've listened this long to indie cast like you know hopefully uh, I, I don't know. I think I might have enjoyed the movie more if like it, it's not a spoiler so much as it is like maybe a fr- like putting on 3D glasses to watch the movie. But yeah, um, and, and I and I think it's possible to watch the movie in a more straightforward way. Right. I don't know if that that's an interpretation I've heard yeah. of it. Uh, and it, it holds water, but also you don't have to watch the movie that way. It's a good movie. You should go see it. It's on Peacock. You should check it out. I gotta ask because like the the the. The the movie that I or not even the movie, but the show that like Colin seems to be talking about, like this one's really stuck in my craw is uh the show Daisy Jones and the Six. Uh like I've not it's it was like an extremely popular book and now like a very popular uh miniseries with like original music with like Blake Mills and Marcus Mumford and Phoebe Bridgers. Um I don't know if you've seen this. Like this show just in concept is like more ridiculous than Elvis. It's I, I I just interpret it as like Fleetwood. It's like loosely based on Fleetwood Mac, but like everything about it is just like the drive shaft scenes from Lost where it's like, I don't know if you've actually met a band or listened to music in your entire life. I think that's the problem with the, a lot of like books that are loosely based on bands. Okay. By the way, you're taking a shot at drive shaft here. Uh, no, I, uh, I fucking love Drive Shaft. I, I they're, am, they're pretty. Cr- I, I'm trying to remember their song. Like, what was their hit? <laughs> oh my god! Like, it's got one fucking line. It's "You All Everybody." How can you not remember the one? 
They only sing one. I saw. I, I saw that show like ten years ago, so it's been a while. I saw I, it like just literally in the past three months. Like we went end to end, Lost, and um, like I love Lost. I, 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 <laughs> yeah. I it's like if there weren't like 150 episodes, I would be tempted to rewatch that because that yeah, was good. It takes Drive fucking Shaft. forever. Drive Shaft is a okay in my book. Um, I have to abstain on Daisy. Was was Daisy Daisy Jones and the, the Six? Yeah, I have to abstain on because I know someone who worked on it, so I, I can't. I I'm not gonna take uh, shots or, or or compliment it. I I have to sit out of this one, even though it seems like a show that I would otherwise have a lot to say about. I just want to say a quick, just to answer the question here, because he was asking if we had any dream biopics. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna go back to my uh, I am trying to break your heart idea. Uh, I think you could make a drama like a fictionalized version of that movie. Although maybe you can't now. I, I always felt like mm-hmm. Philip Seymour Hoffman would have been a great Jay Bennett. Oh, wow, and yeah. sadly, he's not with us anymore. Neither one of those guys are yeah, with us anymore, right. <laughs> unfortunately. Um, but, so maybe you can't make this movie anymore. Because I think, because in my mind it was like, Philip Seymour Hoffman as Jay Bennett and Peter Sarsgaard as Jeff Tweedy. <laughs> Jeff Tweedy would like that, wouldn't he? Yeah, Sarsgaard leaning into his like shattered glass persona, like where he's just like annoyed by his coworker, you know, <laughs> like like that. Maybe that's why Sarsgaard's in my head because I just imagine him having that look of disdain that he has looking at Stephen Glass <laughs> in that movie. Who have you have you seen Shattered Glass? I've not. It's a great movie. Uh, Hayden Christensen is Stephen Glass, and he's like. So annoying. Like, you want to punch him in the face. <laughs> and they really harness that aspect of Hayden Christensen that didn't really work in the Star Wars movies. Right. But, like, he's great in Shattered Glass because it's like he's so punchable. And Sarsgaard is just, like, trying to hold himself back from, like, ripping this guy's, you know, face off, <laughs> you know, as he's just lying yeah. there all the time. So, anyway, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep pitching. My, I am trying to break your heart idea as either a stage play or as a film. I think it would be great either way. Yeah, I think for me, like, the music biopic is, like, a rare situation where, like, the mock versions of them are way better than the real thing. Like, Popstar and This Is Spinal Tap are, in my opinion, like, two of the best movies ever made. And, like, Walk Hard is up there as well. So oh, yeah. I do wonder, though, that, like, it... And again, like this can't happen right now. We're too close to the source. It, you couldn't possibly pull it off where we get kind of like a mock biopic about like, I don't know, the kind of bands that are around today where like everything is just like so earnest and, uh, you know, the, 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 the parasocial relationships with it. Like, I think there's going to be a horror movie about like kind of a quasi Mitski character and her like stalker fans. But I think that like, there can be in the future. Like, I think that this era is ripe for parody. It just will take a few years for us to really be able to wrap our heads around it. Yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm co-signing you talking about spinal tap pop star and walk hard as being great. Non biopic biopics. Uh, Cause yeah, they are better than really almost any biopic you could think of. <laughs> I also want to like sneak in. This isn't a pure biopic, but the Russell Brand scenes and forgetting Sarah Marshall. I thought you were about to I say think, get him to the Greek. Well, get him to the Greek too. But yeah, that, I guess that's an entire just, uh, uh, I forget the name of his character in that movie, but like the Russell Brand character <laughs> who I think uh, is a parody of Harry Styles before Harry Styles was actually <laughs> a thing. 
You just get, I think, the, I, you just get he's Puff so Daddy saying cuckoo-roo. That's, that's like <laughs> the easily the best part. All right, we've now reached the part of our episode called Recommendation Corner, where Ian and I talk about something that we're into this week. Ian, why don't you go first? All right, so I'm just going to get a little out of character right now and talk about a band that is from the UK, but is also getting a little more emo on their new album. Um, Death Crash is the band that like kind of emerged from that Black Country, New Road, Black Midi, uh, Caroline scene in South London, and they put out a record I think I might have talked about in 2022 called Return. Um, there was a little bit of Godspeed, you black emperor in there. There was a little bit of Mogwai. There was some black country, new road, um, some like late period mineral. I say late period, like their second record. Um, and they put out, uh, kind of surprisingly quickly, another album called less, uh, this week. It's a shorter album. It's more spare. It does have echoes of like mineral circa and serenading or, like low or codeine and i see this as a band that similar to the other ones i mentioned like they're going to be a band that like puts out a record probably every year that um you know tries something different is constantly evolving and i really love that about like what's happening with a lot of bands that are out there in the uk i mean yeah there's a lot of like bullshit like talky post-punk that's happening but there's also like a lot of you know bands like legit bands that are constantly evolving and like doing interesting shit i think like even Squid, I'd put them up there as a band doing that. So Death Crash is in that ilk, but they're, I mean, they've said like, yeah, we're an emo band. So I got to respect that. A lot of really compelling, sad music here, but um, also just very enjoyable. Like it's kind of comfort food, but um, if, you know, the saddest parts of the last Black Country New Road album were like your comfort food, this will be as well. So the record I want to talk about is courtesy of friend of the podcast riley walker oh yeah we are both fans of riley we are both fans of his tweets and i'm a big fan of his music and i really like his most recent record it's called live in malmo as you would guess from the title it is a live record and it really spotlights one just the excellent band he's playing with with uh, at, you know at the time that he recorded this including the great drummer ryan jewell who you will know if you are into the indie jam scene. Uh, he, he seems to pop up in a lot of different places. Um, but they really uh, are just like a mind-blowing unit on this record. Uh, there's eight songs on the record, and it's about 80 minutes long. So that gives you a sense yeah. of uh, how deep we get into the jams here. There, there are songs that are like 20 minutes long that are just incredible. Uh, Riley... It, He's so good live. I, I I enjoy his records a lot, but I think the live records are where he really gets to shine. Not only because of his guitar playing, but there's also great banter on <laughs> this album. There's always, between every song, Riley is basically going into stand-up comedy mode. Uh, really funny. So you get great laughs. You get great jams. That, to me, is a perfect record. So definitely check this record out. You want to go on... The Bandcamp page, uh, Riley has a record label called Husky Pants. Great, Husky. great, great label name. Great label name, H-U-S-K-Y, Pants. Go to the Bandcamp, download the record, buy it, give them some shekels. You won't be, uh, you won't regret it. It's a really great record. Um, 
That about does it for this episode of IndieCast. Thank you all for listening. We'll be back with more news, reviews, and hashing out trends next week. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie, and I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box. (laughs) 